Hi everybody, so today joining me we have Dr. David C. Geary. Dr. Geary is a cognitive developmental and evolutionary psychologist. He is currently a curator's professor and Thomas Jefferson Fellow in the Department of Psychological Sciences and Interdisciplinary Neuroscience Program at the University of Missouri in Columbia, Missouri. He is the author of several books, including Children's Mathematical Development, Male, Female, The Evolution of Human Sex Differences, and Evolution of Vulnerability, Implications for Sex Differences in Health and Development. Hi, Dr. Geary. Welcome to the program. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing well. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to everyone. Uh, so. Uh, to begin with, uh, I noticed that in your work you talk a lot about, about some cognitive modules uh, and I want to focus particularly on three of them, uh, folk, folk psychology, folk biology and folk physics. So um, for folk psychology, uh, I noticed that you say that its main components are the self, the person, referring to dyadic relationships and the group. Could you right. explain what purposes serves each of these components of folk psychology and how they give basis to social cognition? Sure. So um, the uh, folk abilities in general refer to abilities that we see um, across human cultures that are universals. They are um, well-developed in uh, adults, but take a lot of experience during um, childhood, be become fully developed. And I um, contrast those with uh, school-based skills, such as reading, writing, mathematics, things you, that aren't universal, that are kind of built on the folk abilities. And then folk psychology is uh, refers to the kind of constellation of skills that allows one to be aware of oneself, which would include um, uh, self-knowledge, self-schema, um, self-awareness, um, things that we all um, take for granted but are actually uh, fairly unique uh, among species. Uh, humans are probably the only species, as far as we know, that can reflect on themselves as individuals, uh, have knowledge of their personality, uh, their likes, dislikes, and so forth. So chimpanzees recognize themselves physically, but whether they can reflect on their mental and social uh, competencies is, is a different matter and debated. So, so that's the, the self component of, of um, folk psychology. The individual component <coughs> are skills that allow one to um, maintain one-on-one -on -one interactions with uh, other people and to form um, individual relationships, say friendships with others or relationships with um, individual family members. And um, these involve things that are well known such as language, um, uh, theory of mind, the ability to make inferences about the thoughts or feelings of other people, sensitivity to um, gesture, body language, uh, vocal intonation, so forth. And I also put in there um, what I call a person schema. So you develop knowledge about each individual person, about what they like, how they respond to things, how warm they are, how agreeable, competent, and so forth. And you use that knowledge in how you um, frame interactions with them. So if you want to ask one person who's very agreeable about things to do something, you would do it one way. Somebody who tends to be argumentative, you would frame it a little bit differently and you build up that personal knowledge. And then people are, um, as, as you know, very highly social species. And we can't develop individual relationships with everyone. Uh, that we come in contact with or a frequent uh, exposure to. And, and so we need to kind of parse social groups. Um, the <clears throat> first parsing is um, in terms of kin. There's just a general cross-species bias for um, favorable treatment of, of kin, and we recognize that, and anthropologists have studied that 
extensively across cultures in terms of um, kind of the, the kin basis for social organization. Now, now of course, people have non-kin relationships as well, but, but, but kin is, is um, central. Uh, humans have a um, clear tendency to form in-groups and out-groups. So the in-groups would, of course, typically include kin, but would also include non-kin, allies, friends, uh, you know, acquaintances that you cooperate with, and so forth. And we have certain biases about how we evaluate uh, in-group members. You know, we kind of have favorable biases toward them. And then um, there are out-groups, um, usually defined in terms of, uh, or often defined in terms of uh, competing groups. So we cooperate with members of the in-group to help us better compete with um, other groups that we call uh, the out-group. And that involves a variety of cognitions and other sorts of things about in-group uh, members. Now, pe people are also very good and, and, and again, unique um, in, uh, relative to other species in terms of their abilities to form large in-groups based on ideology. And in um, nature, if you look at other species where there's uh, group-level competition, uh, chimpanzees, uh, for example, dolphins, lions, other sorts of things, the bigger the group, uh, the um, better the competitive abilities. So generally larger groups, or almost always larger groups, outcompete smaller groups. So any mechanism that increased group size, if there's group level competition, would be favored by evolution. And I think that's where people's tendency to rally around ideologies, whatever they might be, they may, may be national, they may be religious, they may be, you know, university affiliation, what, whatever it is, it increases group size and, and allows people um, that don't know each other to cooperate in ways that are mutually beneficial. Mm -hmm. Right. And so uh, how do these components of folk psychology interrelate with the development of theory of mind? Yeah, so, so theory of mind is one component of um, folk psychology. As, as, as I mentioned, the individual level component allows us to make inferences about the thoughts and feelings of other individuals. And, and again, relative to other species, even closely related species, they, these are very highly developed uh, skills uh, in, <clears throat> in humans. And, and even kids outdo um, chimpanzees. Uh, these skills develop, they begin to develop during the preschool years and um, kind of uh, continue to become refined and emerge up through, through adolescence. I think they're um, important to, uh, in terms of um, uh, dealing with potential deception, because you know if if you're a chimpanzee and something happens and you feel angry or happy or whatever, you're probably going to express it most of the time, and so the the um, relation between what you're expressing socially and what you're feeling internally is, you know, it's pretty consistent. Um, you know, maybe not always, but but much of the time. But but people are different. They can inhibit their um, uh, social cues. You know, they might feel one way and but not want to express that, or they can express something that they don't really feel. And so this disconnect allows us to better manage social relationships for good or, or for bad. Um, and theory of mind is in a sense a counter to that. It allows us to kind of make an inference, okay, is this person really feeling this way? Um, I have to kind of decide, even though it's, it's unclear. Mm -hmm. uh, and since you talked about in-group and out-group dynamics, uh, what is your position, and since you, you also work in evolutionary psychology, what is your position in what refers to group selection? Uh, does it have something to it, or don't you 
Don't you agree with it? Because, I mean, there are people who defend cultural group selection, but when it comes to biological group selection, then the evidence doesn't seem to... Uh, doesn't seem to back it up, let's say. Yeah, um, I mean, some some cultural groups are more successful with various points in history than, than others. Um, yeah, I, I think the unit of selection is the individual. I mean, that that's how I think of it. Um, I, and, but clearly, people um, form large cooperative groups, and they often compete uh, with other groups uh, uh, in that. And so... The way I think of it is in terms of um, individuals who are cooperative, um, are able to um, contribute, you know, the conscientious or whatever, contribute to the group effort. Um, you know, it it aids the group in one sense, but but it all it also selects for uh, those sort of group enhancing um, psychological personality or, or other other traits at the individual level. So I, I think, um, <clears throat> you know, I, you know, on the surface there there is this, this group dynamic, but I I think of it in terms of that group dynamic sets up selection pressures that favors inc increased cooperativeness among the groups, but then the real real level of selection is still at the individual. Mm -hmm. Okay, so and, uh, in terms of our evolutionary history and our survival, what would you say, uh, f first of all, what are the components of folk biology and why was it important for us in terms of our evolutionary history? Sure, so by folk biology, um, what I mean, and, and other people who study this, is people's... Um, either implicit or explicit understanding of um, how other species work. And so that would include um, knowledge of uh, growing seasons of um, plants, you know, if you're an agriculturalist or fruiting uh, trees or whatever it is. And so there, you know, if, if you're living in the real world, you have to get your own food, you can't go down to the quickie mart uh, at night to, to buy something. And so you really need extensive knowledge about that in terms of when to find it, where to find it, how to prepare it, um, what not to eat, um, what you can use as medicines. A lot of these uh, folk medicines actually have um, pharmaceutical effects. Uh, they can be uh, effective. Uh, one very interesting study looked at um, folk biological knowledge in moms and the um, health and development of their children and found that women with strong knowledge of folk medicines and in general folk biology had um, better developing in, in terms of say height and healthier children suggesting that you know they could use this knowledge uh, to facilitate the well-being of their kids which is one way in which this would would evolve and the same, the same is true for, for hunting. Uh, you know, hunting requires um, a lot of skill um, in terms of tracking animals, knowing their behavior, predicting where they're going to be, and, and, and so forth. So we really need this extensive knowledge uh, to survive in natural contexts. <laughs> right. Uh, and in terms of folk physics, I have two questions about it. First of all, again, why was it important in our evolutionary history and, and in what ways did, did it help us to survive in this world? And on the other hand, would you say that because folk physics basically deals w with the way we look at the world around us and, uh, and how we deal with it physically, would you say that uh, it gives us uh, at least uh, partially some of the uh, some of the basis to learn certain aspects of mathematics like geometry. Yeah, um, good question. So um, folk physics is uh, in, involves a, a number of, of different things. Um, one of them is, is just kind of moving around in the world. Um, you know being able to locate something you want and move from where you are to where that is. So basic kind of movement uh, and here and now representation of physical space um, is one component of it. And 
you see that in, in lot, lots of species. I mean, most species have basic kind of movement navigational types of skills. So, so nothing special there. And if we look at other primates, we're, we're not any better than they are generally. Um, people are better than other uh, species in terms of mentally representing uh, visual images so and, and uh, manipulating those. So if I asked you to draw a um, layout of your your apartment or house or whatever or a map of where you are and where you want to go next, um, you could do it. And, and so you're generating a mental image, often a bird's eye view of the larger environment and forming a symbolic representation of that environment. And other, other species just can't do that. Um, chimps may be able to do a little bit of representation and hold it in memory, but, but they're not very good at it. Uh, but but we're, especially, we're, we're especially good at it. The um, folk physics also includes um, the uh, ability or, or the, an implicit understanding of how to develop and use tools. Um, you know, of course, some other, other species do have simple tools, but, but we're, we're supreme in that. And so um, uh, conceptually and kind of visually representing how an object might be used in one way or another way to achieve a particular goal and how we, how we would use our movements to, um, you know, uh, you use the, the tool in that way is something that humans are really good at. Uh, chimpanzees are surprisingly bad at it. I mean, they can kind of figure things out by trial and error, how to use a stick to get something, but, but they don't have any conceptual insights regarding gravity or other types of, um, uh, you know, physical phenomena that even young, young kids do. So it's very, very important. Uh, so, and in terms of the basis it gives for us to learn certain aspects of mathematics, like geometry, for example, the, does it give us any basis or, or not? Yeah, um, good, good question. So, we do have an evolved kind of number sense, uh, a sense of approximate quantity that there's more here of that, you know, berries or whatever, and there's less over here, and if we put these two together, we'd have, you know, approximately this much more. So we, we do have that um, intuitive sense. Um, much of modern-day mathematics, or probably the vast majority of it, is kind of um, culturally constructed. So very smart people have figured these things out over the last um, few thousand years, and it's kind of accumulated um, over time. And, and that's probably separate from our number sense. Now, it's probably the case that certain understanding certain aspects of mathematics, like, uh, like geometry, for example, is easier if you can um, uh, represent uh, vi visually, spatially, two-dimensional space where you're plotting graphs in a, in a you know, in a, in a XY. Um, axes or three-dimensional space to kind of uh, figure out where, where that point uh, would be. So I, I think that, that, that the visual-spatial stuff does aid in terms of how to represent these problems. Um, whether the visual-spatial systems have an implicit understanding of geometry built into them, um, maybe. Um, but it would probably be be, be very simple. Um, I, I think mo most of it is, is just learning to solve problems using visual-spatial strategies. Okay. So uh, one very interesting book of yours I've read is The Evolution of Vulner Vulnerability. And mm -hmm. as far as I understand it, and please correct me if I'm wrong, uh, uh, as you say in the book, men and women have sex-specific vulnerabilities that correspond mm -hmm. to their main cognitive, reproductive, and physical abilities that, that are different between the sexes, right? So, um, what, what, are, what are these main differences, first of all? And in second place, what... 
Uh, in what ways do uh, our studying of these vulnerabilities aids us in giving more strength to, uh, to, the, to the findings we get from other areas and other disciplines in terms of the sex differences? Sure. Um, so the, the basic argument there is that um, due to sexual selection, so competition, or mates or make choices or, or other things that result in the evolutionary exaggeration of um, uh, sex differences. So in humans, uh, men are taller than women, for example, and that's probably due to a history of male-male competition. Um, so uh, men have certain physical and cognitive advantages and women have other uh, advantages that can be understood from an evolutionary perspective. My, my point in, in that book and some follow-up studies is that a lot of these advantages often result in um, vulnerabilities. So um, a lot of these traits are exaggerated in one sex or the other, as, as I mentioned. And that exaggeration means that they require more uh, resources, more calories, more nutrients, uh, longer developmental period, and so forth, to fully develop. And if anything goes wrong during that time, or if there's, um, you know, poor nutrition, poor calories, or whatever, then the sex that needs more to fully develop it is going to be hurt more by uh, these deficits. So, so for instance, uh, with the height, uh, difference. Um, the, the differences, uh, there's small differences in childhood, but, but they really emerge during adolescence where uh, males have an you know, extended growing period uh, during adolescence. And um, chronic disease or poor nutrition, poor chronic nutrition during that time affects the growth and adult height of both men and women, but it has a much larger effect on men than women. So men are um, disproportionately you know, shorter relative to other men than women are when they're growing up in these diff difficult circumstances. And so um, we see the same thing with um, uh, cognitive abilities. So girls and women generally have advantages um, in language. For instance, m most of the individual um, folk psychology skills that, that we talked about earlier um, girls and women have advantages in, um, which is good. But those advantages might also result in vulnerabilities under difficult conditions. And so, for instance, um, uh, prenatal exposure to cocaine, which uh, disrupts cellular energy production prenatally, uh, results in more language deficits in girls than boys because... Um, their language system is, um, you know, it, it has more brain tissue um, devoted to it, uh, probably uh, more white matter and, and other sort of, sorts of things. And everything has to go right to give them that advantage. And if there's problems, uh, such as toxin exposure early on or um, uh, other kind of nutritional deficits early on, it actually affects girls more than boys. Boys tend to have advantages in, uh, in men in the folk physics areas that I mentioned. And um, toxin exposure um, or even um, growing up in chronically stressful environments during childhood affects boys and men's visual spatial abilities much more strongly than affects um, girls' and women's visual spatial abilities. We see similar things with Alzheimer's disease, um, possibly with Parkinson's disease, in a variety of things. So my basic argument is that by taking an evolutionary perspective and understanding what uh, men and women are good at and what boys and girls are good at, we can predict a priori how prenatal exposure to certain types of toxins, how chronic social stressors, how um, malnutrition, which is common or chronic parasitic diseases, which is common throughout the developing world, are going to differentially affect um, boys and girls and men and women.
<clears throat> we can also use this effect, uh, this basic phenomenon, to better understand the effects of um, toxin exposure, either prenatal or postnatal exposure. So if you, um, you know, look at, say, mom's prenatal exposure to a variety of, of chemicals, you know, we, we're all exposed to a variety of chemicals, and, and most of them are fine, but a certain subset of them can, can have problems. And we look at, um, say, girls' visual-spatial abilities, we probably wouldn't find much effect. Um, and we might conclude, well, this toxin's fine. It's not really a toxin. It's a chemical. You're exposed to it. No big deal. But if we look at uh, and if we look at boys' language development, we might say the same thing. But if we look at girls' language development, we may find a different pattern that there actually are deficits. And same with boys' visual spatial skills. So a lot of um, potential toxins, I think, are missed because you're not assessing the right things. You're not assessing the most sensitive things, um, or or they're underestimated because the measures you're given aren't that sensitive to them. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so what you're saying, if I understand it correctly, is, is that uh, these vulnerabilities that are different between the sexes, uh, they are as they are because uh, they affect what has been uh, what has been selected in terms of intrasexual competition and also via sex, sexual uh, sexual selection. Right, right. That that those processes result in bigger, more elaborated traits. The more elaborated traits re require more to build and maintain. So anything that compromises the ability to build these or maintain them is going to affect the bigger traits more than the smaller traits. And so if one sex has better abilities in one area, that, uh, you, know, um, uh, you know, stressors are going to undermine those more and the sex with the advantage than the other sex. Mm -hmm. Right. So just before we get into the work you've been doing on education and so on, uh, there's this difference between biologically primary and secondary information. So uh, what is the difference between them, these two things, and why is it so important for us to understand this differentiation in order to better understand human cognition and even perhaps to improve children's learning in the education system. Right. Yeah, so I, I, I made that distinction uh, quite quite a while ago uh, in my first book, uh, Children's Math Development, and in a follow-up article in American Psychologist, and argued that um, it's really important to discriminate between these primary abilities or the folk abilities, say language, and biologically secondary kind of school-based competencies that are built on primary systems um, because it has strong implications for how we educate children. So language is, is a primary ability or folk ability. It's kind of a universal, so forth. Um, we know that reading is built onto the language system. So, you know, they're basically more or less the same brain areas uh, involved there. But to learn to read, you have to have um, explicit instruction on uh, phonemic awareness, word decoding, word recognition, and so forth. And, and that just doesn't happen unless you go to school. Uh, to to learn how to do that. Now that distinction is important because in the U.S. at least there was um, maybe twenty some years ago or a little bit um, longer than that ago there there was a a movement called whole language uh, where the basic assumption was that children would learn to read, learn to write, learn to spell correctly, and so forth. Um, in the same way that they learn natural language. So in natural language, they're embedded in social contexts, and it just kind of emerges there. Um, and so they assumed that if we put kids in uh, schools, we surround them with books, we let them see you know, adults reading books and so forth, just give them the exposure that they're going to learn to read and write and so forth without any teacher-directed instruction. Um, and it was a disaster. It just did not work. 
Um, you know, the same approaches have been tried with math, and they don't work either. Um, and so making this distinction between the primary or folk abilities and the school-taught abilities um, is real critical because um, their acquisition in kids um, occurs very differently. Mm -hmm. but, but do you think that the primary biological components, let's say, uh, could help us in trying to devise at least better environments for the children to learn in? Yeah, so, um, uh, good question. So, as, as I mentioned earlier, uh, girls have advantages in these folk abilities, uh, folk psych abilities, um, and language is one of them. So, girls have earlier language development, they have better sensitivity to phoneme discrimination, uh, and so forth. And those language abilities allow them, uh, make it easier for them to learn how to read. So, to break down words into sounds and to learn to discriminate the sounds associated with their different um, letters and symbols and so forth. And that contributes to, you know, a worldwide advantage of girls in reading uh, fluency, comprehension, and so forth. So, one implication of that is that if we were just going to, we know nothing about you know, reading or, or anything like that. We know that girls are better at language. We know that reading is built on the language system uh, in part. And we and so we would anticipate that boys are going to need more explicit direct instruction in things like um, phoneme discrimination, phonological awareness, word decoding, and so forth. And, and in fact, they do need that. Um, but, but they don't get it uh, unless they're identified as having reading problems, uh, but the average boy do doesn't get it. But uh, from this perspective, from the perspective I'm talking about, we would just assume that most boys are going to need a a, something additional um, for reading. And we could make the same argument for um, girls and women when it comes to visual-spatial aspects of mathematics. And so, um, you know, on average, there's not a big sex difference in math, but when we look at the visual-spatial uh, dependent areas, there is a difference. And um, part of the difference resides from men, are, or boys and men are more likely to spontaneously use visual-spatial strategies uh, to try to solve certain types of math problems. Women are less likely to spontaneously use the visual-spatial and more likely to use a language-based strategy, which in some cases just doesn't work as well. But you can teach women and girls to use these visual-spatial strategies. They just need more direct instruction. They need to be shown, on average, how to do it. Well, they'll practice. Um, they, they can get pretty good at it. Um, but a lot of people deny that there are sex differences in these areas, and so they, they don't want to um, admit that and take that that just kind of pragmatic approach. Okay, there's differences here. There's something we can do about it in terms of school learning. Let's just do it. So do you think that this knowledge is important particularly to try to level the field in terms of if, you, if we know that uh, boys learn these things easier and girls learn those things easier that we can compensate in both sexes for the skills they lack innately, let's say? Um, yeah, I think so. Um, you can, but, but, it, but it's not done because a lot of people are reluctant to um, admit that girls have advantages in some areas and boys have advantages in other areas. Or what they do is try to compensate and increase girls' visual-spatial abilities generally, which maybe you can do a little bit, um, but they're still not using those to spontaneously solve certain types of math problems. I mean, you just kind of, well, girls need to know, learn how to plot and graph and understand these things. Just teach it directly. Mm -hmm. yeah, and same, same with boys reading. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And uh, why do you think mathematics is one of the disciplines where students tend to get the worst, the worst results? Because, I mean, can we establish an evolutionary explanation for it? Is mathematics 
particularly counterintuitive in comparison with other disciplines? Yeah, I think so. I, I think the gap between um, you know evolved language competencies and reading is, I mean, there's a bit of a gap. You need to learn how to do it. But when you read, you're essentially talking to yourself, right? And you're um, developing mental models of your reading and literature thing. You're using your theory of mind to understand characters and such. So there's not a huge gap there between our folk abilities. And once we get good at reading and reading comprehension, there's a bit of a bit of it there. So you need schooling, but it's not huge. When we get to mathematics, the gap between our inherent number sense and say algebra is huge. Um, you know, it's a very um, symbolic system. It's a system within itself. It involves, you know, basically inhibiting all of your folk biases and learning this logical mathematical system that has all these abstract uh, symbols that have no meaning outside of, you know, the context of whatever it is, whatever form of mathematics uh, you're learning. So it's probably one of the most abstract, difficult, and uh, remote from our folk abilities um, disciplines that we have, which is why it's so hard and why we expect it to be hard. Mm -hmm. okay. um, <clears throat> yeah. Yes, you, you were going to say something else, or? Yeah, and, and, you know, one of the things that some educators try to do, at least here in the U.S., is try to make mathematics fun and enjoyable for kids. And um, from an evolutionary perspective, um, we wouldn't expect that, uh, we, one, we wouldn't expect it to be fun for most kids. And to make it fun, you have to make it more similar to primary types of activities. But it's not but it's very distant from primary activity. So I think the more you try to make it fun, the less rigorous the mathematics uh, becomes. And just, I mean, it takes a lot of work, a lot of practice, a lot of homework, and so forth. It, it's not fun. Uh, and about it being fun, it is a good segue for the next question, that is, uh, what evolutionary role would you say play as in children's, in children's development and in children's learning? Because, I mean, uh, is play important mostly for children to acquire social competencies and learn how to move in their, in their social environment? Uh, or, or, is, or can play also play a role in acquiring, in acquiring certain academic competencies? Yeah, yeah, great, great question. Yeah, I think play, play is critically important for kids. Um, it allows them to learn uh, a number of things, you know, regulate their emotional states. It allows them to learn about themselves, learn about how, uh, you know, social dynamics uh, work. It allows boys to do a lot of group level play. It allows them to kind of organize themselves. Um, you know, they imitate older kids and adults in traditional contexts and learn how to hunt or do whatever um, people are doing in those types of contexts uh, through imitation and play. So, so it's, it's very, very, very important. Um, Child-directed play, I don't think, uh, in fact, I'm, I'm pretty certain that it is not going to be helpful for learning something like high school algebra. Um, but, it, but it might be helpful early on in the learning process. So we're looking at preschool young kids and incorporating, um, you know, adult directed or guided play to learn, you know, numbers, you know, numerals, letters, and so forth. So I think early on in the acquisition of secondary or school taught abilities, um, you can um, use children's play um, as long as it's guided and structured in some way, to, to start to get the basics down. Um, but free, free play won't, won't do it. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So, uh, and because boy, boys and girls and men and women have these cognitive differences, uh, I mean, we, you already talked about some of them. Men are superior to women when it comes to visualizing, mentally rotate and transforming 3D objects, for example. Uh, and men are less 
verbally fluent than, than women. That's another example. So do you think that, and this is perhaps a somewhat controversial question, that teaching should be tailored to boys and girls? Well, I, I think that, um, yeah, there, there's a lot of controversy around kind of like same-sex schooling sorts of things, and, and I don't think there's good evidence one way or the other. Um, you know, and boys and girls need to learn the same things. Um, but I think in certain areas, as I mentioned, um, we might anticipate that boys, you know, both boy, boys and girls need to learn uh, phonemic awareness, kind of what letter sounds doing word decoding and so forth but girls on average are going to pick it up more quickly than boys and so we might anticipate that you know you don't necessarily do something different but but boys may need a bigger dose of that particular thing and, and the same for for girls for certain uh, visual spatial aspects of mathematics may need a little bit more of what everybody else is getting Mm -hmm. so, so you wouldn't say that segregate learning would, would be justified in, in any way, uh, right? Yeah, I, I don't know about um, segregated learning because um, in a lot of areas, I mean, once boys and girls are fluent readers, I mean, they're both learning history and geography or whatever it is they're taking, and, um, you know, there, there's no need for sex-specific instruction in those areas. It's, it's just in a few specific areas, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, and about what some people espouse to be the best way to teach children and adolescents and for them to learn. I mean, the, uh, there was another book edited by you that I read, uh, Evolutionary Perspectives on Child Development and Education. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, in a chapter of it, I think, it was Peter Gray, a, a colleague of yours, who, that talks about the observations he made at uh, Sudbury Valley School. And what he basically defends is that, based on the idea that children would naturally look for older children and adults to learn from them and acquire the essential knowledge to be able to survive in their particular society, let's put, let's put it that way, that this would be pretty much enough for them to develop the necessary academic competencies. You already commented a bit uh, on this, but what would you say about that? Yeah, that, that's, Pete, that's Peter's argument. And he... He believes that, um, yeah, if you put kids in a social context, you know, have academic materials available for them, that they will eventually seek out older kids or whatever to help them learn um, those things. <clears throat> you know, and it's, it's certainly the case that some kids and some people can, you know, learn a lot of things on their own without going to school. But um, the majority... Um, don't you know? I, I mentioned the reading wars, where his approach was um, more or less a, a try in um, elementary schools in the U.S. And a lot of kids just didn't learn to read. Now he he would argue that's because that was a standardized school um, curriculum, where rather than a kind of free flowing sort of thing at at the schools that that he studied. Um, but but the you know the work by the U.S. Reading Panel and other studies suggest that for the majority of kids, that kind of free flowing uh, uh, context just isn't going to work very well. Uh, and <clears throat> and other studies of kids who are um, you know have dif difficult time learning mathematics also find that you know the more explicit, the more structured the instruction, uh, the better they do. So I, I, I just, you know, it may work for some kids. Um, you know, and a lot of those kids in the school that he talked about, I mean, it's a very wealthy area. And I suspect that a lot of the students have a lot of home support um, as well for their learning. And they're probably pretty competent, you know, cognitively competent, so forth. And so it's not a random sample of, of kids. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, and uh, would you say that, uh, I don't know if you already thought about this before or not, but that perhaps 
this approach that Peter Gray talks about in the book uh, could be helpful at least to certain specific types of children, let's say, for example, that uh, the ones that uh, are not very conscientious and, and not very agreeable and that would, uh, would possibly prefer uh, this type of environment of simply uh, going to uh, an, uh, an adult and ask them to learn certain things that they are specifically interested in. Do, do you think that, that this could make sense or, or not? Well, um, yeah. <clears throat> I, I can imagine that most kids would prefer that type of um, context where they kind of have control of what they do and when they want to learn to read and when they don't want to learn to read and so forth. But um, I, I don't think kids have enough foresight to understand what they need um, to be successful in a modern world. I mean, you know, it's the world is changing. Uh, the difference between what it takes to be successful today and what it took to be successful 10,000 years ago is, is very different and children's uh, preferences, motivations, learning biases, and so forth are designed for a more traditional context and learning what you need in a more traditional context and not learning um, algebra or, or technology or other types of things that are going to make them successful in a modern context. Mm -hmm. And so would you say that uh, that is true because the things that kids, uh, let's say 10,000 years ago or more, uh, looked for uh, to learn from older people uh, were, were things that they were innately predisposed to learn and that nowadays most of what people have to learn at school is very distanced from, right. from those sorts of things. Right, and, and, and that, that gets at the crux of the argument between um, Peter and I, and, and even David Sloan Wilson um, agrees with, with Peter on this, is that it is clear. I mean, there's a lot of observational studies of kids in traditional cultures, and um, there's not much direct instruction by parents. It's a lot of social play and observation of older kids and adults and imitation and so forth. There may be a little bit of instruction here and there by adults, but not much. Um, but the things they have to learn there um, like hunting, um, tracking animals, cooking, you know, whatever it may, you know, tool making, whatever it might be, you know, or physical skills. I mean, they're probably predisposed um, to be interested in those sorts of things and to learn them. You know, learning to make, um, you know, bow and arrow is probably fairly complex, um, but it's not the same as learning a very abstract, evolutionarily novel discipline like. Um, algebra, um, for, for example, the, the gap there between kind of what we're predisposed to early, uh, to easily learn and to think is fun and what we need to learn uh, in, in a modern society is, is very big. Now, now Peter and, and, and David would argue that um, it doesn't matter, that this gap doesn't matter, that they're going to learn whatever. Um, but I, I just I just don't believe it's true. Mm -hmm. uh, and would you say that uh, in more traditional slash primitive societies, uh, that uh, the simple fact that children uh, looked to other people, adults, and other children to try to learn from them, from them, that that would be enough for them to acquire. Uh, all, all the competencies uh, that, that they needed to survive and to reproduce or for example as you were talking about the uh, to build an arrow would you say that simply by looking at other adults doing it that they would acquire that knowledge or that they would need some sort of more directed learning from the adults well, they seem to acquire most of it through imitation and, um, you know, ju just copying what adults do. I, I guess adults here and there will give hints, say, you know, try it this way or try it that way, whatever. But it's not a, a structured type of, of um, 
uh, you know, uh, in, instruction about how, how to do it. You know, the kids go up and they learn it and imitate and watch when they want to. And adults will give some feedback here and there. They don't kind of um, set it up so, so, so kids learn it. And, and it seems to work. I mean, it takes a long time in many cases for people to get competent at these things. Uh, but that kind of process seems to work just fine. Mm -hmm. Okay, so just before we finish, Dr. Geary, could you please tell pe people, if that's the case, uh, what are you working on now, if you have another book in the making, and perhaps share with people where they can follow your work on social media and so on? Okay, sure. Um, I am yeah doing a couple of things. I'm thinking about doing, I'm talking with my publisher about maybe doing a third edition of Male Female. Um, if they'll allow me to expand it, there's more, a lot more research now, and, and so I, I, I may or may not do that. Um, I'm working on this sex differences and vulnerability um, work, trying to understand uh, how, uh, in one study, we're looking at um, binge drinking in young adults, and how that leads to potentially leads to sex-specific cognitive deficits. Uh, based on my model so so we're working on that we've we've run one experiment that looks promising and we gonna be doing some follow-up work on that one um, I've been studying um, kids uh, preschool kids development of mathematical competencies looking at the relation between the, this inherent number sense and their symbolic learning of numbers and number concepts um, and just started a um, large-scale longitudinal study of kids um, or adolescents um, learning of algebraic concepts. So, um, keeping the other than that, I'm just, just hanging out. Oh, and, and just finished um, co-editing a five-volume series on um, mathematical cognition and learning, uh, published by Elsevier. So, the fifth volume of that should be out this this fall. Um, I don't actually do a lot of social media. I don't have Twitter or I have Facebook page that my daughter set up for me, but I, I never go on it or I go on it occasionally, but not, not very often. Um, so, but if anybody's interested, I do have a web page or they can email me with questions. I, I try to respond uh, to those. Could you, could you just tell people what, what is the address for your web page? Um, yeah, I, I think if, if you just, I don't remember it off the top of my head, I, I, I think if you just Google David C. Geary, University of Missouri, then uh, it'll pop up. And I have um, links to my books and lists of articles um, and stuff. And, and some of the articles I have preprint uh, reprints on them there. And um, there, there's a lot of them on ResearchGate as well. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. So, Dr. Geary, I would just like to ask you to keep on the line because I will finish the recording, but stay on the line, please. And uh, just to finish, I would really like to thank you for sparing a bit of your time to being here with us today. I, I really admire your work, so thank you. keep on with it and thank you again. All right, thank you. If you appreciate my work, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash the dissenter. Thank you.